As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us by his spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you incline your ear, O Lord, and answer us, for we are poor and needy. And gladden the heart, souls of your servants, for to you, O Lord, do we lift up our souls. For you are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. So give ear, O Lord, to our prayer and listen to our plea for grace. And teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth and unite our hearts to fear your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. I think you'll find that on page 673 of most of the Pew Bibles between the books of Psalms and Ecclesiastes, Proverbs chapter 5. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the book of Proverbs and we've come to chapter 5. And so we want to consider this chapter together. We're going to read the entire chapter and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near to the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others, and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go into the house of a foreigner." And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered about, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. 
Well, one commentator in talking about what's going on in this passage said that this is a robust man-to-man warning against adultery, uh, father-to-son, talking about difficult topics, uh, that this was written in order to safeguard the generations from pursuing easy sex. Um, And if any generation needed to hear that message, uh, it's certainly our generation. Um, And so it's not an easy topic to talk about, and I am aware that uh, there are little ears listening in the audience, and so we want to be sensitive to that. Um, At the same time, we've been, it's one of the advantages of just continuing through God's Word, that we come to passages as we come to them, and if we come to difficult passages, we face the difficulties together, and you don't need to feel as if the pastor is trying to speak to some individual problem in the church. Uh, or picking on somebody, or picking on a hobby horse. Uh, We just come to this in the regular order of instruction, because this is part of wisdom for young people. Uh, Particularly as the father is trying to instruct his son. It's likely that this would have been the time where the son is approaching marrying age, or maybe just married, and his father wants to give him these instructions. Um, The generations need safeguarding, particularly on this topic. Um, particularly on this topic in our generation, um, because the devil does in every generation what he's been doing since the beginning. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ, very helpfully sketches out what's happening in the Garden of Eden, but he says the devil has a trick that he likes to play over and over again. And that's to try to come to God's people and say, you know, God is really possessed of a narrow and restrictive spirit. He loves being the God of no. And he loves coming and trying to deny people pleasures. He really loves to deny things for people to enjoy. And he, I think it's a really insightful view of what, God, of what the devil tries to do to God in the garden. He tries to come to Eve and say, does God really not want you to eat of these trees? Is that really the kind of God who you have, who you serve? The God, kind of God who builds a garden and then says you can't eat? Um, He's seeing what the devil always tries to do is narrow God down as if God's commands are for the purpose of expressing his really restrictive spirit, uh, that he likes to deny people good things um, and tries to keep you from seeing the God we really have, a God who is actually generous, a God whose commands to enjoy the creation he's made are actually large and far-reaching. And his commands to refrain from certain things are actually very small and designed for our protection. Um, And so far from being possessed of a narrow and restrictive spirit, our God is a giving God. He didn't need the creation. He made it for us. And he made it very good. And he made it to be enjoyed. He is a wonderfully generous God. And where he says no to small things... It's because he knows they're not good for us. Far from trying to enjoy, keep us from enjoying things, God wants to, us to find happiness in keeping away from the things that would be bad for us. And what the devil successfully did in the garden was narrow Adam and Eve's focus down to the small restriction and allowed that to become so large in their minds that it hid the generosity of our God. That God is actually a God who is generous. And if we have any doubts about that, we need look no farther than his gift of his son to us. 
Uh, what was the greatest thing that God possessed as a father? It was his son. And when his son was what was necessary for us to have life, he gave us his son too. Um, and Jesus willingly came to save sinners. That's the generosity of our God. Um, and one of the dangers is always to look at the good gifts God gives and then to try to have the devil or the world shrink them down to saying, actually, God just doesn't want you to have good things. And where does, God, where does God's word get faced with that kind of uh, adversity and opposition than in the case of physical intimacy? Um, what God's rules are for that. And the father is telling his son, actually, the Lord has given you Marriage as this wonderful, expansive world to be enjoyed. His command and blessing to you is actually large. It's lifelong. Um, don't be fooled by the, the advice of the world and the devil that's always telling us, actually, God is a closed-fisted God, and there are all these enjoyments to be had if you just depart from his command. The father wants his son to see the wisdom of how God has ordained marriage to include physical intimacy and how that's not appropriate anywhere else. Um, the father wants to drive that point home for his son to glorify God and so that the son finds true happiness, uh, finds true happiness in the world. Um, that's what we are trying to do this morning as well, to, to uphold the character of our God, to see his good gifts for what they are. And to see a departure from his law as, as the deadly and destructive thing that it is to the people of God, particularly in this area of physical intimacy. And so that's what this passage is really about. It's really an expansion on the warnings the father gave his son in chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death, and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Um, and although this advice is couched in terms of a father to a son, this is advice that should be listened to whether we're married or single. Um, whatever stage of life this comes to us, uh, we should pay careful attention to what God's word says about the importance of fidelity in marriage um, and the dangers of adultery. So how do we see this passage breaking down for us? How can we think about it together? Well, we first see the protection against infidelity. Uh, the father instructs his son about what is the protection against infidelity. Uh, and then he reminds him of the terrible price of adultery. Uh, that's the second part. And finally, the profit of fidelity. The profit, the blessings of what God has given to his people. So the protection against infidelity, the price of adultery, and the profit of fidelity is what we want to think about this morning. Uh, the protection against infidelity, one of the father, things the father teaches his son right away is that the protection that wise speech offers us. Um, if, you, if you were thinking about how to write a passage of a father instructing his son about the dangers of adultery and where to begin, um, we might not think that, you know, the wisdom of your speech is what will keep you safe. 
Uh, but that's what the father says to his son, very interestingly, at the beginning of chapter 5. Be attentive to wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Um, ears that have heard and really taken it in, and mouths that speak wisdom, are really what the father says will protect you against the infidelity that threatens. Uh, and why do the lips, why does our speech function as that guardian? Um, because we're going to encounter other speech in the world. Uh, the lips that guard discretion are contrasted immediately with the lips of the forbidden woman. Um, it's a reminder that the world comes to us selling something. Uh, the world comes to us with a sales pitch for the ways of the world. That's how the devil came to Adam and Eve. That's how the devil came to the Lord Jesus in his temptation with a sales pitch. Um, and so what is the, the best defense against the speech of the devil, the speech of the world? It's the speech that knows how to counter that. The speech that knows what to say in response. Um, she's presented to us as someone whose lips drip honey. Uh, there's nothing sweeter in, in, that, in that world than dripping honey. right? They didn't have sugar that you could just go out and buy. Uh, one of the sweetest things you could find was honey dripping from a honeycomb. There's nothing sweeter. Um, her words are smooth words, as the father said in chapter 2, kind of captured by the fact that her, her mouth is oily, right? Her speech is smoother than oil. Um, it seems sweet and smooth. It seems to make a lot of sense. Um, and so what is the son going to need to counter something like that? He's going to need to have his own sense. Um, his own sense of lips which guard wisdom. Uh, he knows what to say in response to these kinds of enticements. He's been given the wisdom to answer. Um, someone said that lips that guard knowledge permit nothing to escape them that proceeds not from the knowledge of God and aims at the working out of this knowledge. A wise person speaks wisdom always, not rashly or without considering the consequences. Uh, what does wisdom help us to do? It helps us to meet the smooth words of the devil, the smooth words of the world with the sovereign words of our God. Um, the Father is saying, my words are wisdom. If you hear them, they will guard you. That speech will protect you. You'll be able to match the smooth, sweet-sounding speech of the world with the sovereign truth of our God. And isn't that the lesson that our Lord Jesus Christ taught us in practice in His temptations? How did he meet the, the temptations of the devil? Constantly, what did he come back with? The sovereign words of God. Oh, no, no, it is written. It is written. It is written. Right? The, the words of God are the protection against the smooth words because they not only understand how things are to confront that speech as it comes in all of its sweetness and its smoothness, but also can see the consequences of where that speech actually leads. It not only considers the, the present moment, but is able to see where things end up. That's what wisdom allows us to do, is hear that speech and say, let's follow it down to its end. Let's think about the consequences of following that way. 
Because what happens with that speech that seems so sweet and seems so smooth, where does it end? Well, the Father tells us where it ends. In verse 4, of the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. What began sweet ends up bitter. What began smooth ends up sharp and biting. Two-edged sword can, can harm you in any number of ways. It can slash one way, it can slash the other, it can stab. It's, it's a very dangerous weapon. And that's what wisdom allows us to see, not where this just begins, but where this ends. The Lord Jesus says to the devil, no, I won't put the Lord to the test. Because I know where that ends. When people... God, when people sinned against God by putting him to the test, he swore an oath in his anger they would never enter his rest. Where did that end? It ended in death. That's what wisdom allows us to do, to see not only what's going on, but the consequences of following those words, where those things end. In the end, she seems to have this wonderful suggestion to give, but in the end, she doesn't know where she's going. Right, that's what verses 5 and 6 remind us. It's a picture of total moral failure. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she doesn't know it. Right, the, the world is so convinced it knows what the end of its ways are. That this is the way really to follow and to find human flourishing and really to find a a well-realized life. But what the truth of Scripture reveals is to leave God's path is to wander. You don't know what you're doing, you don't know where you're going, and you don't even know it. You think you see clearly where you're going, but you don't even realize you're wandering off to death. Um, She doesn't know what she's doing. She doesn't know where she's going. She's not someone to be followed. Um, Because her paths lead down to death. Um, Those who argue against God's rules, particularly in the area of physical intimacy, um, if they refuse to follow him, they haven't found the path to life and happiness. They've found the path to death. Um, That's the reality. And the father wants to drive home that reality and, and force his son to consider Not only the protection against infidelity, but the price of adultery. He says, let's work out together where this would lead if you choose to follow her. If you choose to go the wrong way, where will that end up? If you choose adultery over fidelity with your wife and listen to the words of the forbidden woman, where will that end you up? Um, Where will you go? Will it be a costly price to pay in life? The father says. Uh, In practical terms, he warns the son of economic ruin that's sure to come. Economic, not just in the sense of dollars and cents, that it'll cost you money if you do this, but economic in terms of all the work the son has done his whole life. Um, That's the kind of economic ruin the father is talking about. It's a ruin of everything the son has spent his life working for. That's why the warnings of verses in 7 and 8 are, are, so, are so urgent for the son. 
and not just for this son, but for the generations of sons. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Because what will happen if you do? It's economic ruin, everything that you've worked for. Verses 9 and 10, lest you give your honor to others, your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. There's a sense of cause and effect here. Uh, What is the father really saying to the son? Everything you've labored for over the years, all that you've worked for, all that you've worked to store up for yourself, all of that work that has brought you splendor, brought you honor, it'll all be thrown away through adultery. Others will benefit over what you had. You'll invest it in somewhere where there's no return. There's nothing that's going to come back to you from strangers, from the merciless, from the houses of foreigners. It's hard not to hear this without thinking of the prodigal son who travels off to a foreign land with his father's inheritance and squanders it all. And where are the foreigners that he squandered all the money with once the money's gone? Where is everyone else once he's lost everything? Once, as his brother said, the property's been devoured by prostitutes. Where is it? It's gone. And where are those foreigners? Are they there to care for him? No, they're gone too. And the father's saying, that's the kind of ruin you face in this life. The threat of giving everything you've worked for, all your years, all your labor, all your honor that's come from it, and just throwing it away. Letting it all be the benefit of someone else. Someone who's not your family, not your people, who won't care about you or for you when it's gone. There's economic ruin in this life. Um, All that you've worked for, enjoyed by others. Um, It's a terrible fate. And it's not just economic, right? It's social. There's a social cost, he says, to squandering everything you've worked for. Um, the life that the Lord has given you to invest in family and in your community. Uh, There's a social ruin. There's that recognition in verses 12 through 14, right? At the end of your life, 11, you groan, and when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Um, what may have been a private dalliance has been become a source of public embarrassment. Um, the, the assembled congregation, why is the congregation assembled? Um, because there was a penalty for adultery in the Old Testament law. Um, depending on the, the extent of the sin and who it was committed with, there were serious consequences in the community for committing adultery. Public denunciation excommunication, confiscation of the property that one has left, flogging, and even in some cases, you'd be stoned to death. And it's the public seeing that you had all these teachers to teach you, came from a good family that taught you wisdom, and you chose to ignore it all and go your own way. And it's become a source of public social ruin in the community. And what would happen to somebody who's stripped down to nothing 
in that legal hearing of an assembled congregation? What option do you have left? Again, it's the option of the prodigal son. Maybe I can sell myself into slavery and have something to live on that way. Now, someone might say, well, pastor, we don't face being sold into slavery these days, so is that really a threat? But think about the cost today. I think one commentator had it right. Although sexual immorality today may not lead to slavery, it still leads to alimony, child support, broken homes, hurt, jealousy, lonely people, and venereal disease. It's not without cost. It's not without a price to be paid. Um, And if adultery in this life is not repented of, there are consequences not just for this life, but for the life to come. But again, someone could come to Proverbs and say, you're being a little naive. I know people that engage in this stuff all the time. And their economic situation is just fine. And the social situation in our world is such that hardly anyone thinks anything of that. I mean, at least, you know, as recently as my grandparents' generation, if, if people lived together and weren't married, they would call it living in sin. Um, even if you didn't have strong Christian commitments, that's still how you thought about it. Um, no one thinks that way anymore. And someone might come and say, you know, Proverbs, that's just outdated thinking. There aren't these risks anymore. You can do these things and not be ruined economically or socially. You know, Proverbs is always holding out to us the the long view of things, the true end of things. You You may get away with no major consequences in life for your sin, but what is the promise of verse 21? The Lord is still watching. The Lord sees what no one else might see. Right? A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Just like we've talked about when Proverbs promises life, it's looking beyond just this life to the life to come. And likewise, we could say when Proverbs talks about death, it's not just talking about death in this world. It's talking about death in the life to come for those who are unrepentant and unbelieving. A person may escape economic consequences, may escape social consequences in this life. They will not escape the judgment of God. God's eyes are on the path and pondering what we do. Um, His judgment cannot be escaped. There is a reckoning coming for sin. Um, Someone rightly said, behind all practical arguments, there is ultimately a religious reason. The all-seeing, all-knowing Lord upholds a moral order where sin brings its own punishment with it, and a person sows what he reaps. Promises of verse 22 and 23 is that we'll be entangled in our own sins. They will ensnare us and bring us down to death. Um, This is a very serious warning. And the only way to escape is to flee to Christ for refuge. Um, This is a picture of hopelessness without the Lord and his forgiveness. Uh, the unrepentant sinner is warned. Your sin may, may often find you out in this life and cause problems, but even if you think your sin won't find you out in this life, the Lord will call it to account. Uh, he sees, and so the only course is to flee to refuge for him. What the father is trying to do with his son is plead with him to avoid this. Try to show him clearly where this leads and say, you want no part of this. 
It's better to avoid this altogether. Um, But there's hope that as long as life lasts, there still might be a moment where you come to yourself like the prodigal son um, and say, how I despised wisdom and correction and how much I need it now. The father wants his son to understand the price to be paid for not listening, uh, but he also wants him to understand the profit of obedience. What is to be gained uh, by finding his satisfaction only in, mar- only in marriage and not anywhere else? Um, because again, God is not just the God of no, not just the God of restriction. The restraint on his son is actually very small for his own protection, but the far-reaching expanse of his commandment is great. And the son wants, father wants his son also to understand the profit that's to be gained from fidelity to marriage. Um, to see the, the large and far-reaching enjoyment that the Lord has ordained for husband and wife in the marriage relationship. Um, and we have these wonderful pictures in this passage of the enjoyment of physical intimacy in marriage. Uh, that God gives it as something to be enjoyed, um, and not just enjoyed for a little while, but continuously at all times. This, again, expanding on the blessing that God gives in the marriage relationship and why it's to be so preferred to anything outside of that relationship. Um, And so the father is going to be very clear with the son about the blessings of marriage. Now, when God speaks clearly, um, it doesn't mean God speaks explicitly. Sometimes on this topic, people think, well, you know, to really be clear, you have to really be almost embarrassingly explicit about things. Well, no, this passage makes the point. These are all meant to be private, but the Bible manages to speak clearly without speaking explicitly. And how does a wise father do that for his son? Well, he uses the metaphor of water. Somebody said, you know, in a dry and arid climate, what better metaphor is there Uh, for need and thirst than water. Um, And this passage really exhausts the water imagery available to talk about the relationship between the husband and the wife, particularly the physical relationship in marriage uh, under the metaphor of the water. Uh, God likes to do this. He does this in Song of Songs as well as an expansion on uh, the intimacy of marriage to, to use poetic language so that it's not... Explicit. It's not uh, meant to, you know, stimulate us or arouse us, but it is meant to instruct us, um, and it allows the Holy Spirit in a poetic and metaphorical way to sort of pull the court- curtains over things that would be too explicit to discuss. And so, in a beautiful way, what does the Holy Spirit do here? He says, "Let's talk about this in terms of water," because people living in this land would understand how precious a thing water truly is. Um, and that's the metaphor that's being used uh, as, as he talks about these things. Um, why would you stray outside of marriage looking for water uh, when you've been given a blessed fountain of running living water in your own wife? That's the beauty of what the father is saying to his son. It's his prayer for his son. It's his hope for his son. But it's his teaching to the son about marriage. Your wife will be a blessed fountain to you. And it's a blessed fountain that God has given for you and only you, right? In a a precious world like that, you wouldn't let water run into the streets like they're talking about 
in this passage. Drink water in verse 15 from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. If someone had a wonderful well that was filled with fresh living water, they would hardly let that water run out into the street or let just anyone come and have it. It would be precious. It would be for his use only. And the father's encouraging his son to think of that preciousness in his own marriage relationship. Um, and to understand it's a, it's a river of, it's a flowing water, a well that is constantly being refreshed. Right? That's better than he could find in other places. Um, one commentator said, strict fidelity is not an impoverishing isolationism. But from such a marriage, blessing streams out in the persons and influences of a true family. It's not isolating, but it's private. It's a private blessing that the, that the Lord has given to a husband and a wife. Um, and it's to be enjoyed. Um, it's to be cherished and as you would cherish water in a dry land. But that's the picture that the Lord gives. That's the father's prayer for his son that his wife would always be a blessed fountain and that the son would find his joy exclusively in his wife. Um, That he would create a holy thirst, that God would create a holy thirst in the son for the wife of his youth. Um, That he would always find his refreshment in her. Uh, That's the beauty of what's being said here. Uh, By God's sovereign design, physical intimacy in marriage is a wonderful blessing that's to be enjoyed as a large and far-reaching blessing. Right? That's, that's the point of verse 19, to see the expansiveness of the blessing. Um, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, those are romantic things to say in their context. You might not like being described as a deer, but I'll leave that to you, uh, to you women out there. Um, but that was meant to say, to be very, to be very attractive, very complimentary. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Where is the love that's been given by God to his family? It's to be embraced at all times, always. That's to show the expansiveness of the blessing. To show that it's a beautiful thing, it's a graceful thing, it's a right thing, it's meant to be enjoyed. This is one of the places God has said, go ahead and be drunk in that. Right? The Bible talks about so many things we ought not to be drunk with, the things we ought to be sober and self-controlled with. But what does he say here? You can be drunk in your wife's caresses. Against this kind of thing, there is no law. It's the gift of God given to husband and wife. And I realize that when it comes to this topic, it could die the death of a thousand qualifications about this relationship and marriage. But that's not the point of this passage. It's to say this is such a blessing and such an expansive blessing that God has given as part of marriage. Why would you go try to find this somewhere else? Right? When God has given you so much here, why go somewhere else? That's the question of verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Where there's no return, where there's no blessing, 
Um, it, it becomes utter foolishness to think about the expansiveness of the blessing of marriage and the utter nothingness of what's available outside of that. It's a picture of God's gift to us in marriage. And the teaching of God's word in this is very clear. There is no acceptable substitute for physical intimacy than in marriage, one husband with his wife. Uh, That's it. And if a person looks for it apart from God's design, he or she will find only a ruinous, deadly experience. Uh, That's the reality that God says for us. Uh, Because he lays it down very clearly that instead of being drunk in the caresses of your wife, you'll stagger like a drunkard down the path of death. Uh, The same word that's used in verse 19 uh, to talk about be intoxicated with her love is the same word that appears again in verse 23, because of his great follies led astray. It's both ways of talking about the way a drunkard reels down the street. And you can either be intoxicated with the caresses of your wife, against which there is no law, um, or you can stagger down the path to death. But those are the only two ways it can go. God is setting before us a serious issue. It's a choice between life and death. And I think that the importance of that needs to be heard, especially in our time, where people either make too much of this or too little of it. Um, our, our, that's sort of the way the world and the devil can work, sort of paradoxically. Um, if you talk about abstinence and purity, people will scoff at you and say you're just not being realistic. Sex is too much a part of life to really believe that. Um, But then at the same time, they'll come back and say, it's not really that big a deal. You can engage in it with anyone, anywhere, and it's just fine. Um, And so that's the way the world wants to talk. And we need the the wisdom of God to avoid the follies of these lies. To see the truth and where it lies against the folly and the wisdom of the world. To see what God makes very clear about where these things are reserved for in marriage. And so we understand married or single, life can be lived without this kind of physical intimacy. If, you are, if you're singly living in order to honor God, it's good to, abstain, to abstain from these things. You're honoring God in what you do. It doesn't mean you live a diminished life. Blessedness is still found. And if you're married and are enjoying this in life, you don't need to be feel, feel bad about that. God has given that to be enjoyed. Um, that's the blessing that he has given in marriage, but other than that, um, other than finding the happiness in the in the expansive place where God has ordained it, we're not going to find happiness. But we need to rightly understand these things so that we don't make God the God of no, the closed-fisted God. But understand what does God really want for us? He wants us to have life and to have it abundantly, and to avoid those things that are going to lead us down on a path to death. And so this is a serious calling to us all, married or single, um, to, to hold up God's wisdom in these things. And also maybe the case that someone has come under the conviction of this uh, word today, recognizing and exposing our own sin, which is what the law is intended to do, but it's also intended to drive us to Christ. One of the important parts of the story of the prodigal son is there's a moment when he comes to himself. 
He stops seeing things the way the world and the devil want him to see things. And he comes to himself. And what does he say when he comes to himself? I've got to go home. I've got to go home. I found myself dying in a foreign country. I have to go home. If we've come under conviction by this word today because of sexual sin in our lives, uh, the word is calling us to come back to our Father, to come home, to recognize our sin for what it is, but not to despair in it, but to turn to our God, to repent of our sin to acknowledge it before him, and to seek refuge and healing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as the prodigal son found a father who ran out to meet him when he came to himself and came home, that's what we'll find in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how deep our sins are. That when we turn to him and come to him with our sins, we'll find him running to meet us, eager to forgive us and to help us, to walk on the path that leads to life. That's why he came into this world. So that you would have life and have it abundantly. That's why he died on the cross to pay for your sins. So the wrath of God would be extinguished. So that you would find rest for your soul. And that's what he's calling us all to. To turn to find refuge in him. And to begin to walk with his spirit on a purposeful path that leads to life, not wandering on an aimless path that leads to death. So may we all find life in our Lord Jesus Christ um, and find abundant life in his name. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you for being a good and gracious God, that you have created this world and all its many blessings for the enjoyment of your people. And that includes marriage and includes the intimacy that is emotional and spiritual and even physical as part of marriage. It's your expansive blessing uh, to us. And we thank you for it. Um, We pray that it might be a source of enjoyment for all those who are married, a source of giving thanks to you for that wonderful blessing. Um, And that those who are not married might not seek it uh, for themselves until that state that we would see Uh, that that is a folly that leads to death. Uh, That those who are married might not be tempted to look outside of their marriages. Lord, we all know that we stumble and fall in many ways. That we transgress this commandment in thought and word and deed and without your forgiveness and without the help of your spirit, uh, the enemies are too powerful for us to resist. We thank you that the battle does not lie on our own strength, but that the battle belongs to you and the help of your spirit is that work greater in us is the one than who's in the world. And so we pray that you would continue to help us and to support us to see your commands for our good as being the large, far-reaching, generous commands they are. And the commands against things to be the small, refraining commands they are for our blessing and protection. We thank you for your generosity, not only in creating such a world, but also sending your son to redeem that fallen world and return us to your favor. We thank you for your grace and your generosity to sinners, Lord. We pray that we would, and thanks for all you've done, honor you with our bodies and souls. And hear our prayers, we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.